Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is another installment of our ongoing series, Charles Manson's Hollywood. Last week, we took a tour of Spawn Ranch, the dilapidated Western movie set which Charles Manson used to house his family and used as a base from which to prepare for the race war which Manson had convinced his followers was outlined in the lyrics of the Beatles' White Album. Manson told his followers that the Beatles, the biggest rock band in the entire world, were expecting Manson to record and release a companion record to the White Album, in which Manson would continue the apocalyptic saga, telling the British rockers how to survive the coming showdown. But after the summer of 1968, when beach boy Dennis Wilson began to distance himself from Manson and his previous promises to sign the guru to a contract at Brother Records, Manson came to understand that his best shot at releasing the album that he had promised his family was a key part in the upcoming revolution lay with Terry Melcher, a record producer whom Manson had met through Wilson. Manson was highly strategic in his courting of Terry Milcher's attention. At first. And then, Manson got desperate. And then, he got dangerous. If the story of Charles Manson's Hollywood is the story of a music and film industry in crisis, thanks to an unignorable generation gap, then no chapter of that story is more emblematic of both sides of that generation gap then the story of Terry Melcher and the two women in his life, girlfriend Candace Bergen and mother Doris Day, and the tragedy that ensued when slumming rich people failed to accurately assess the capabilities of literal hungry hippies. True outsiders to an establishment which paid lip service to changing the rules but didn't ultimately want anything to do with anything that they couldn't profit off of. Join us, won't you, as we trace a line from Doris Day to Charlie Manson through Terry Milcher. I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet, and I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Terry Melcher, Dennis Wilson, and Greg Jacobson called themselves the Golden Penetrators. 
Kind of a late 1960s preview of the pussy posse headed by Leo DiCaprio and Tobey Maguire in the 1990s, the Golden Penetrators dedicated themselves to getting with the hottest girls in town, preferably those who came from the most elite Hollywood families. By 1966, this group had been riding together for so long and had accrued so much local power and celebrity that not only did no one ever tell them no, but it never occurred to any of them that anyone ever would. This was learned behavior for Dennis and Greg, but Terry had been born into Hollywood royalty. Ever since he was a little boy, Terry Milcher had soaked up special treatment. When he was a teenager, Terry and Dean Martin's son, Dino Jr., took Wilson and Jacobson for a joyride, culminating with Terry pulling a handgun out and shooting out some streetlights in plain view of a cop car. The cops gave Terry a slap on the wrist, confiscating the gun, but telling him that his dad could come pick it up at the station in the morning. Terry enjoyed a charmed Hollywood childhood because he was well known to be the son of singer-actress Doris Day, who was Hollywood's top box office star for much of the 1960s, and Marty Melcher, Day's agent and sometime producer of her movies. Actually, Terry had been adopted by Marty Melcher. He was actually the product of Doris's first marriage to trombonist Al Jordan, a relationship which some people believe was the model of the passionate love-hate spin on the A Star is Born story at the center of Martin Scorsese's revisionist musical, New York, New York, starring Liza Minnelli as a singer who becomes a big star after leaving the abusive father of her young son. In real life, band singer Doris Kappelhoff, whose surname was changed today because Kappelhoff sounded too Jewish, found herself pregnant in 1941 at the age of 17, and she happily married Al Jordan and quit the business. But Jordan wasn't so happy. Jordan wasn't interested in fatherhood. When Doris wouldn't abort their baby, her husband brought home some kind of urban remedy that was supposed to make her vomit the baby up. And when that didn't work... Al beat his wife up. A lot. Hoping she'd miscarry. She didn't, and Terry was born in February 1942. The beatings continued until Doris took the then-unprecedented and legally shaky move of locking her husband out of their house in 1943. After they divorced, Doris had another fraught, very short-lived marriage to another musician, and in 1947... Upset about her impending second divorce, Day started weeping while singing Embraceable You for her first Hollywood screen test. This show of emotion endeared Day to the director supervising the test, Michael Curtiz, who gave novice actress Day the starring role in his romantic comedy, Romance on the High Seas. Within 10 years, she would become the top female box office star in town, as well as a machine that cranked out hit-pop singles. Doris Day's lasting persona is that of a perpetual virgin, which isn't quite accurate. Day's career hit its peak in 1959, with her most famous film, Pillow Talk. Previous to her pairing opposite Rock Hudson in this innuendo-laden sex farce, Doris Day had been considered the girl next door. Slightly tomboyish, the opposite of urbane, but confident, cheerful, and optimistic. The epitome of can-do post-war Americana. 
Though her character in Pillow Talk and subsequent films is today remembered as a prude and a scold, in the context of the time and her career up to that point, Pillow Talk basically gave Day a chance to remake herself as a modern vixen. It was the first film in which Day wore tight-fitting, of-the-moment fashions, playing a contemporary career girl who was single and independent, but hip to the ways of men, even knowingly cynical about them. In fact, some of the principles that Day stands up for in a lot of her movies, that men treat her with respect and not lie to her, for instance, and that her career is a part of who she is and not just a time-killer until matrimony, would have been considered feminist in movies starring younger actresses a decade later. Day was maybe able to get away with playing women who are open to being seduced because the audience still perceived her as being a fundamentally good girl. But she wasn't getting any younger. Day, who first became well-known for singing the late World War II ballad Sentimental Journey, whose persona as the perfect American wife Alfred Hitchcock played with in The Man Who Knew Too Much, had been such a powerful icon of 1950s and early 1960s womanhood that she became a relic extremely rapidly with the advent of what we think of as the 60s. By that point, Day had gone from embodying the girl you both want to sleep with and take home to your mom to embodying the mom who didn't approve of the girl you really wanted to sleep with. It didn't help her image with the hip kids that in real life, Doris was known to be a devout Christian scientist who didn't smoke or drink and also let her very religious husband control her career. While Doris worked, Terry was largely raised by his grandmother. In his teens and early 20s, Terry, blonde and blue-eyed, just like his mom, put in time in a couple of surf bands. When one of them opened for the Beach Boys in Hawaii in 1963, Terry suggested that his friend Greg Jacobson come with. Jacobson was working as a movie extra and couldn't afford the plane fare, so Melcher asked him to come up with some song titles. Melcher then called Bobby Darren, sold him three of Jacobson's song titles on the spot, and gave Jacobson the $1,000 royalty so that he could make the trip to Hawaii. Making money was that easy for Terry. By the time Melcher was 23, thanks to his mother's standing as a major star and stockholder, Melcher was hired as a producer at Columbia Records, where he was put in charge of recording a local act called The Birds, a group of folkies who had been inspired to form an electric band after seeing the Beatles film A Hard Day's Night. The Birds were about to cut a cover of Bob Dylan's Mr. Tambourine Man. Melcher evaluated the band, determined that four out of five members were marginally talented at best, and replaced them on the recording with studio musicians. The single became a massive hit, and Terry Melcher became a go-to guy assigned to all the long hairs, the boy genius who could help the pop music establishment figure out how to monetize the counterculture. Melcher lived in a house in Benedict Canyon, which he rented from Rudy Altobelli, a talent manager who worked with stars like Henry Fonda and Katharine Hepburn. When he was 20, Terry had dated the high school student daughter of Edgar Bergen, a famed TV and radio ventriloquist. Candace Bergen had a first impression of Terry Melcher as being a guy whose luck would never run out. But their relationship faded away thanks to their age difference. Then, at a party at Melcher's house in 1967, Candace Bergen and Terry Melcher reconnected. 
Bergen had dropped out of college two years earlier, when she was cast in Sidney Lumet's film of Mary McCarthy's The Group. And the blonde beauty had since become a highly successful model and an actress who became the first name on the list for every role Julie Christie turned down. Candace Bergen was a child of the 60s only technically. Now 21, she looked and dressed the part of a sophisticate. Shortly before the party at Melcher's house, she had been photographed at Truman Capote's black and white ball, wearing a take on a Playboy bunny outfit designed by Halston, and she showed up at Melcher's place, a typical hippie party where boys and girls alike were decked out in denim and fringe, wearing lounging pajamas designed by Christian Dior. Bergen had not yet moved far, philosophically, from her Hollywood upbringing. She bristled against the vogue for foreign and realistic cinema. She thought the whole point of movies, as she'd later write, was that they weren't verite, but fantasy. Before that party at Terry Melcher's house, there was little in her life that was as important as her new Cartier watch. Terry Melcher loved his toys, too. He had servants. He drove a Rolls. But he was also deep into the counterculture professionally and personally committed to social change. He was a big giver to charity and an outspoken proponent of Native American rights. His party was the first real hippie party Candace had ever been to. Lit by candles, soundtrack by the doors, thick with smoke from a thousand joints. Even though they were living different lives, four years after their initial breakup, Melcher and Bergen decided to give it another shot. And Bergen moved in with Melcher at his house at 10,050 Cielo Drive. One thing they had in common was that they were children of Hollywood, in some sense caught between their parents' generation, the generation that was on its way out, and the one that was coming in. They lived like the money would never run out. They hired a butler, a houseman, and a maid. They spent the equivalent of $2,800 in today's money every month on flowers. Bergen kept a certain reportorial distance from the counterculture. In 1967, Candace's photographs of her and Melcher's rich hippie friends were published in a spread in Esquire magazine titled, Is Bel Air Burning? Even with Bergen installed in his house, Melcher still liked to make the scene with his fellow golden penetrators. And the summer of 1968, his fellow golden penetrators wouldn't shut up about this guy they had met named Charles Manson. Melcher went to visit Spawn Ranch, and his initial impression was positive. Terry came home and raved to Candace about this commune Dennis Wilson had taken him to, where a bunch of kids ran around naked with no hang-ups or inhibitions, just the guidance of a guy in his 30s who had a lot of deep thoughts and who made sure the kids were safe and fed. Everyone was content to live without material things, as long as they could share love and write songs. Candace was like, uh-huh. And why can't they sing dressed? She declined Terry's invitation to accompany him on his next visit to Spawn Ranch, which was fine with Terry. Like his friend Greg Jacobson before him, Terry took a liking to 17-year-old Manson girl Ruth Ann Morehouse, otherwise known as Weesh. He liked her so much, in fact, that he thought about installing her in Cielo Drive as a housekeeper. But of course, this was not going to fly with Candace. Terry Melcher wasn't going to hand a record contract to a guy just because he liked his vibe. Melcher may have gotten his foot in the door thanks to his mom, and he may have found a niche thanks to his youth. But the reason why he was so successful 
is that he always considered the bottom line. He didn't ask Columbia to do anything that he didn't think would make money for Columbia. And he wasn't convinced that Manson was a rock star. Still, the guy had something. This was when Greg Jacobson was still into the idea of making a movie about Manson, a documentary of sorts capturing his scene. Jacobson marveled over the ability Manson had to change his personality to suit whomever he was with. With Wilson, and to a lesser extent, the other Golden Penetrators, he was the confident rock star, improvising new songs on the spot as though it was the easiest thing in the world. He could turn on his racist redneck side when bikers would come to the ranch to visit, and then turn right around and butter up George Spawn, convincing the old man he was respectful and eager to please. And of course, to the girls, he was a combination of father, lover, and god. Maybe this was being a genius about people. Maybe it was a kind of acting. Nobody knew what it was, so maybe it was a movie. When Jacobson suggested Melcher put up the money for a film about Manson, Melcher made him go through the steps of writing a formal proposal. In that proposal, Greg Jacobson first used the phrase, the family, to describe Charlie and his followers, and it stuck. Generally, Charlie found Terry Melcher to be a much tougher nut to crack than Dennis Wilson had been. Terry had parties at his house, but they weren't the free-for-alls that Wilson's had been. Even if all the guests had long hair and were generally groovy, these were still invite-only, rather elite affairs, only distinct from the parties his parents threw in that the music was rock instead of jazz, and instead of martinis, everyone was on pills, pot, and or psychedelic drugs. Terry was happy to come to Spawn Ranch and fool around with Ruth Ann, and Charlie was occasionally allowed to tag along with the Golden Penetrators to clubs or parties. But according to multiple sources, Milcher did not extend an invitation to Manson or his family to come to Cielo Drive, ever. In fact, one day, when Wilson gave Milcher a ride home and Charlie happened to be in the car, Milcher very pointedly did not invite them in. Tex Watson also visited Cielo Drive, once, to borrow a car, but he wasn't invited inside either. Here's a sidebar. One famous source who claims that Manson was in fact allowed inside Melcher's house is Sly Stone, whose records Melcher was producing at this time. In a 2009 radio interview, Sly Stone said he remembers seeing Manson in Melcher's house multiple times and that he could tell Melcher was afraid of Manson, even though no one knew at that point the extent of what he was capable of. I'll note two things. Sly Stone was a cocaine and PCP addict for decades, so maybe his memory is not crystal clear. And also, a couple of years after the murders, when Sly Stone recorded a cover of Doris Day's signature song, K Sarah Sarah, rumors started to swirl that Doris Day had, or was having, an affair with Sly Stone. Sadly, these rumors cannot be substantiated by me. End sidebar. Melcher had accepted a couple of tapes of Charlie's songs. He hadn't listened to them, but he hadn't told Charlie flat out no either, so Charlie continued to hold out hope. He was just frustrated that it was taking Terry so long to realize that Charlie was obviously Columbia's next huge star. What Charlie didn't realize is that that same summer, Melcher's family was falling apart. 
Marty Melcher died in April 1968, leaving son Terry as Doris Day's most trusted advisor. But as Terry started putting his stepfather's estate into order, he made some surprising discoveries. Everyone knew that Doris Day's career had fallen off in recent years, in part because of her advancing age. She was in her mid-40s by 1968. And in part because Marty had cast his wife, without consulting her, in a few badly received movies that damaged her star value. Movies that he produced, like the confused, quasi-feminist but not really comedy western The Ballad of Josie, which begins with perhaps history's worst plot song, and the Frank Tashlin farce Caprice, in which the heavily made-up day looked, according to critic Judith Christ, like an aging transvestite. But in 1968, few were pointing fingers at Marty Melcher for Day's decline. The fact is, the kicky American girl she had been so good at embodying in the 50s and early 60s was now really passe. And Day had missed an opportunity to reframe her career and earn the respect of the new generation when she turned down Mike Nichols' offer to play Mrs. Robinson in The Graduate, saying that the film, quote, "...offended my sense of values." Even if Doris Day had lost her currency, she should have been financially secure enough after nearly 40 films and countless hit recordings to be able to wait out a transitional period or even ease into retirement. But what no one knew until Terry started digging into his mother's finances is that Doris Day was broke. In fact, Marty Melcher had taken something like $20 million in earnings from his wife and funneled the money into bad investments into a business partner through Swiss bank accounts. Marty had been able to hide this from his wife for a long while, but then he died, suddenly, under semi-mysterious circumstances. He got sick and didn't seek medical help because he and Doris were devout Christian scientists. And the next thing they knew, he was dead. And Doris Day was in serious debt to creditors as well as to the U.S. government. And, completely unbeknownst to her, Marty had signed a contract for Day to star in her own CBS TV show. Terry Melcher dropped everything in his own life and went to work trying to protect his mother's assets and career. One day, he announced to Candace that they were giving up the house on Cielo Drive and moving out to Malibu so that they could take over residency in his house his mother owned there so that she wouldn't lose it. Terry started working around the clock, dividing his time between recording studios and lawyers' offices, working late into the night, taking sleeping pills and drinking to deal with his stress and chill out enough to get a few hours of sleep before starting again. His relationship with Candace started to wither away, and he completely disappeared from the social scene. He had confided the situation to his closest friends, but they knew Terry didn't want the world at large to know that Doris Day was broke because they were trying to broker new deals to reinvigorate her career, and they didn't want to weaken her market value. So Charlie didn't know what was going on. All he knew is that Terry Melcher was his last, best chance at a record deal, and Terry wasn't coming around anymore. Charlie didn't even know yet that Terry and Candace had moved out of the Cielo Drive house. Manson kept asking Jacobson to deliver messages to Melcher, but Melcher never got in touch with Manson. By now, it was early 1969, and the family was in the midst of intense preparations for Helter Skelter. As part of the family's quote-unquote training, Charlie started sending various groups out on what they called creepy crawls. Like a lot of the things that the Manson family did, 
Creepy Crawls started out as a more or less harmless game. Basically, they'd drive around late at night, pick a house either at random or because they knew for a fact that someone rich and or famous lived there, gain access to the house stealthily, usually through a window or a door that the residents had left unlocked, and rearrange furniture and stuff inside the house without waking anyone up. Then they'd leave, also avoiding detection, and laugh all the way back to Spawn Ranch thinking about how these rich piggies were going to wake up the next morning and walk around their house in total confusion over what had happened while they were sleeping. At first, creepy crawls were very specifically not about stealing. It was even funnier to imagine the piggies counting their valuables and realizing that nothing had been taken. In mid-March 1969, Charlie finally heard from Melcher. The record producer had agreed to come to Spawn Ranch and listen to Charlie play his music. Charlie told his family that Helter Skelter could wait. Now they had to switch full force into preparing for Terry Melcher's visit to the ranch. For the first time, it seemed expedient to do something about the massive piles of horse manure lingering around the flimsy buildings in which they slept. Manson instructed the girls to learn how to bake cookies and cakes so that Melcher could be served something sweet to eat, something that wasn't made from scavenged trash. Manson trimmed his hair and beard, took one of his rare baths, and he spent precious helter-skelter funds on a special order of deerskins, which he had his women sew into a costume for him to represent his commitment to living off the land. Manson even put all of his family members through a rehearsal of what would happen when Melcher arrived, where everybody was supposed to stand and what they were supposed to say and do and not say and not do. But then the time came when Melcher was supposed to arrive, and he didn't. Charlie Manson was pissed. How dare Terry Melcher stand him up? Even putting aside the fact that Melcher's no-show crushed Manson's ego and deflated his ambitions, more importantly, it made him look like a fool in front of his followers, who had been convinced that Charlie only wanted to become a rock star because it was his destiny as a prophet, what with his spiritual connection to the Beatles and all. Charlie wasn't able to spin the producer's failure to show as anything but a disappointment. In order to save face with his family, if nothing else, Manson decided that he had to find Melcher and either get the record deal that he deserved or else exert some kind of punishment so that Manson's family would see that those who betrayed Charlie Manson did so at their own peril. So on March 23rd, Charlie got in his car and drove south and east from Spawn Ranch crossing Ventura Boulevard at the edge of the San Fernando Valley and into Benedict Canyon, up the slope to Mulholland Drive and over into the Bel Air Hills. 10,050 Cielo Drive sat at the end of a twisty, narrow road. You'd never be able to find the house unless you knew where it was. Charlie parked his car and started sauntering across the large yard in front of the brick and redwood main house. Terry Melcher wasn't there. What Manson didn't know was that Melcher had long since moved out to his mom's house in Malibu, and that owner, Rudy Altabelli, had found new residence for the main house, while Altabelli himself lived in the guest house. Before Charlie could make it to the front door, he was spotted 
by Shiro Katami, a photographer who was working with a friend of his who was currently living in the house. Hatami had never seen Manson before, and he didn't like the way he looked, so the photographer went out on the porch and asked the stranger what he was doing there. Manson said, I'm looking for Terry Melcher. Shiro Katami didn't know Terry Melcher, and had no idea he had lived in the house until recently, and was in fact a friend of the current leaseholders. So Tatami said, This is the Polanski residence, referring to Roman Polanski, the film director who was in Rome working on the movie that he thought was going to be his follow-up to the previous summer's smash hit, Rosemary's Baby. The photographer told Manson to try the guest house, figuring Rudy Altabelli could do the work of getting rid of this guy. This took long enough that the woman Hatami had been there to photograph, Polanski's wife, Sharon Tate, got curious and came to the front door. She said, Who is it, Hatami? And then she saw short, hairy Charles Manson standing in her front yard. And their eyes met, and they stared at each other for a few seconds. Until Manson turned and walked down the path to the guest house. There, Rudy Altabelli, who had met Manson a few times and wasn't into his trip, told Charlie that Terry had moved. When Charlie asked Rudy where Melcher was now living, Rudy lied and said Melcher hadn't told him where he was going. And then Charlie, who knew Rudy was an agent, started trying to engage him in conversation about his music. Rudy cut him off. He told him he was really sorry, but he had to pack. He was leaving the country the next day. Which was true. Tate and he were going to meet Polanski in Rome. When Charlie still wouldn't leave, Rudy told him flat out that he didn't want anyone disturbing his tenants. And finally, Charlie walked away. But he left an impression. The next day, on the plane to Rome, Sharon Tate asked Rudy, Did that creepy guy come back to see you yesterday? Weeks went by, and while the family went back to preparing for Helter Skelter, Manson was still doing everything he could think of to get in touch with Terry Melcher. Finally, Melcher called the ranch. He didn't explain why he'd stood Charlie up that one time, but he promised. He'd come to the ranch on May 18th, and Charlie should be ready to audition then. Again, Manson began directing a spectacle to greet Melcher's arrival. He even choreographed the girls, who would be singing backup vocals, to perform an erotic striptease dance to the music. When Terry finally did show up at Spawn Ranch, he made it clear that this wasn't a social call. He didn't want to fool around with Ruth Ann. He didn't want to eat the girls' freshly baked cookies. He was there to hear Charlie's songs. So Charlie played a few songs, and the girls sang along and stripped and danced. At one point, Charlie took a little break and started trying to rap with Melcher, telling him all about how and why they were raising children on the ranch who would only ever eat food that other people had thrown away. But Melcher asked him to get on with the music. When the show was over, Terry took Charlie aside. He said he thought his songs were interesting and told him he knew a guy who had a recording studio in a van. And then maybe he'd send that guy out to the ranch to record a few demos with Charlie. Then he gave Charlie $50. This was purely an act of charity, inspired by the guilt Terry felt when Charlie talked about feeding children garbage. But when Melcher was gone, Charlie managed to spin the cash donation as something equivalent to a signing bonus. 
he told the family that Terry Melcher was coming back to the ranch to help Charlie record an album. Who knows if Charlie really believed that Melcher was interested in his music. Most of the family wanted to believe that Charlie was going to make it in music because they remembered how nice it was living at Dennis Wilson's house. And they hoped Charlie would become a rock star and then he would get a mansion and then they wouldn't have to go live in the desert and hide out waiting to play their part in a race war. They hadn't heard what Terry had actually said to Charlie. Melcher had been very careful not to tell Charlie anything that implied that he, Terry Melcher, was going to record Charlie's songs, let alone pay Charlie or make him famous. In fact, the audition had convinced Melcher, without a sliver of a doubt, that Charles Manson had no musical talent whatsoever. That he was, as Melcher later put it, like every other starving hippie songwriter who was jamming Sunset Boulevard, a hundred thousand every day, who looked, dressed, talked, and sang exactly like Charles Manson. But still, Melcher seemed to feel some kind of obligation to Charlie. Or maybe he just felt bad for all of those kids who were living a pretty rough life under Charlie's control. And so Terry did talk to his friend with the recording van, and they made arrangements to come back to Spawn Ranch on June 6th. June 6th arrived, and so did Melcher, with his friend Mike Deasy and his recording van, and Greg Jacobson, too. Charlie and his family put on their show. In a tragic attempt at ingratiating themselves with Deasy, the family gave him LSD, and he suffered a terrible trip. Sitting around a fire while Manson sang and preached, Deasy totally freaked out. He felt like Manson was guessing his thoughts and trying to steal his soul. When Manson then invited Deasy to have sex with one or more Manson girls, Deasy accepted the offer, but then decided Manson was the devil and tried to exterminate him by impaling him with a pitchfork. Deasy was thrown off his target by what he called Manson's goons, probably meaning Bruce Davis and Tex Watson. And this somehow wasn't the biggest disaster that happened that day. After the pitchfork incident, Melcher and Jacobson were helping Deasy back to their car when they were interrupted by an old drunk waving a gun. This wasn't one of Manson's guys. One thing Manson didn't let his followers do was drink alcohol. It was Randy Starr, a wannabe stuntman slash Spawn Ranch hand. Starr had been married to Wendy Buckley, the lady who said that Manson had beaten her up after she accused him of using her truck to commit robberies. No one around knew about this history, except possibly Charlie. Everyone else just thought Randy Starr was a harmless old drunk. But Charlie saw him coming and went ballistic. Don't draw on me, motherfucker, Charlie shouted, and then pounced on Randy and started beating him to a pulp. Charlie had apparently been worried that Randy would make a bad impression on Terry Melcher, but Charlie could do that all by himself. The next day, Terry called Charlie and politely told him the truth. Melcher wasn't going to give him a record deal. Charlie had no problem spinning this rejection to his followers as a reversal. Terry Melcher had gone back on his word, and so now... Terry Melcher was the enemy. Leslie Van Houten, one of the girls who'd go to prison for committing murders in Manson's name, would remember this as a turning point. At this point, Leslie would say, 
Charlie stopped pretending that he wasn't angry. He was mad all of the time. And subsequently, the Little Manson family games and their training exercises for Helter Skelter took a darker turn. Preaching while his followers were on LSD, Manson started talking about death all the time and how death and life were the same. He repeatedly asked individual family members, Would you die for me? And of course, the only acceptable answer was yes. Creepy crawls continued, but now they evolved into actual burglaries. Charlie instructed the kids to take anything easy to pocket with obvious value, with credit cards being a key score. He started musing that maybe it was time to go into these houses and tie the piggies up with ropes and actually frighten them to death. In early August 1969, shortly before she gave up on the relationship with Melcher and moved out of his mother's house in Malibu, Candace Bergen woke up and realized the telescope was missing from their beach patio. They were later informed that this theft was a message from Charles Manson. Bergen, ever the bridge figure between her parents' generation and her own, would crack that Manson's annoying careerism had turned him into, quote, the Eddie Fisher of flower children. If only Manson were that harmless. A week later, Sharon Tate and her friends were mutilated and killed in Candace and Terry's old house. Christmas lights that Candace had strung around the property were still up, twinkling into the night. The day after the murders, it was erroneously reported in the newspapers that Terry owned the Cielo Drive house. That's the extent to which Melcher was associated with that property. And the real owner of the house, Rudy Altabelli, was so understandably freaked out that he ended up staying with Melcher in Malibu for six weeks after the murders. Learning of the killings, Candace wailed, It could have been me! Everyone in Hollywood was saying something like that. But this couple, even before they knew who was really involved, had good reason to believe that they may have narrowly escaped a massacre. But Terry couldn't believe Candace was only thinking about herself. It could have been you. It could have been us. Shortly thereafter, there was no us for Terry and Candace. She moved out. Two months later, she had a late night urge to give her ex a call. She found him at Doris Day's house. The police were in the next room, he said. They had come to tell him that they had made an arrest in the Tate killings. It was Charles Manson. Terry Melcher sold Doris Day's beach house. He moved away from the secluded Malibu beach into town and bought a bunch of guns for self-protection. He slept with a pistol under his bed and hired 24-hour bodyguards. Greg Jacobson told him that Manson couldn't have sent his kids looking for Terry that night. Manson knew that Terry had moved. But Terry, like Dennis Wilson, was still paranoid that Manson could still send someone to take care of him. And the worst thing was that he wouldn't be able to spot danger coming for him. The dangerous hippies looked like all the other hippies. When questioned by the LAPD, both Wilson and Melcher downplayed their connection to Manson, as did a lot of people in the rock scene who had met him and not suspected that he was going to mastermind a murder conspiracy. 
When the cops asked Melcher if it was true that he had fooled around with one or more Manson girls, he told them that he had been dating Candace Bergen at the time. With that kind of beauty at his disposal, Melcher asked, Why would I want to screw any of Manson's clap-ridden, unwashed dogs? When Melcher was brought to testify against Manson, Charlie was in the courtroom, and Melcher was scared to face him. He begged to be allowed to give testimony in another room, and when that was denied, Terry could only testify under heavy sedation. He was vague about the details of his meetings with Manson, and probably shaved a couple of visits to the ranch off of the official record, if other accounts are to be believed. Holes were not poked into Milcher's story on the stand. That's not what you did with the kid of a celebrity. It was a shaky time for Melcher, for a while. He had been working in the studio with the Birds at the time of the killings, cutting the album The Ballad of Easy Rider, whose title track, co-written by Bob Dylan, had been the theme song of Dennis Hopper's movie. Melcher then supervised a re-recording of the song with orchestral accompaniments. He then went on to produce the next two Birds albums, the second of which, Bird Maniacs, Melcher so drowned in strings that some members of the band disowned it, calling the record Melcher's Folly. He had more success working with his mom. Terry became executive producer of Doris's CBS sitcom, which became a cash cow for both of them. They won a lawsuit against Marty Melcher's former business partner, although Doris had trouble collecting the millions of dollars she was awarded in damages. In 1988, Melcher co-wrote the hit Beach Boys single, Kokomo. He died in 2004 from cancer. He was survived by a wife, a son, and his mother, Doris Day. Next week, we'll learn about the first Manson-associated killers, ties to experimental film, the occult, and of course, the Los Angeles rock and roll scene. Join us then, won't you? Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. Today's episode was written, edited, and narrated by Karina Longworth. That's me. We had a special guest, Nate DeMeo, who played Charles Manson. Nate DeMeo has his own podcast called The Memory Palace, and it's about to start a brand new summer season. Find it at thememorypalace.us. For more information about this episode of You Must Remember This and other episodes, you can go to our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter at RememberThisPod. You can rate and review us on iTunes and subscribe to us there or on your podcatcher of choice. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Good night. Like